0: Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you, and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 73. Well, hello, hello, my beautiful community, my beautiful friends. Welcome back to The Healing Catalyst. And if you're new here, welcome. My name is Avanti, and I'm so glad that you're here. This month on the podcast in December, we're exploring the intention of the healing journey in which we're going back through this year and the incredible journey that we've all been together on this podcast in this community. You know, this past year has been one of so much growth for this podcast. So to celebrate all of this each week, we're presenting a compilation on three different topics, a best of type thing with excerpts from our most popular episodes this past year so that you can listen and learn again from our incredible guests and their priceless wisdom. You can also share these with your friends and family to help you round out this year and get ready for the new year with so many important learnings in mind. Last week, we explored the healing journey with energy and how to heal with energy. If you haven't already listened, make sure that you go back and listen to that episode. It's also linked in the show notes for you. So this week, we're exploring the healing journey with food and how to heal with food with three of my guests from this past year. First up is Dr. Drew Ramsey, who talks about the healing power of traditional dietary patterns. Next is Dr. Uma Naidu, who explains the gut microbiome and its connection to brain health. And finally is Dr. Kanchen Koya, who talks to us about spices as medicine. I hope that you enjoy this compilation on the healing journey with food with my guests, Dr. Drew Ramsey, Dr. Uma Naidu and Dr. Kunshan Koya. This first excerpt for the healing journey with food is with Dr. Drew Ramsey. Dr. Ramsey is one of the leading voices in the growing field of nutritional psychiatry. He's a psychiatrist and also an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University and founded the Brain Food Clinic in New York, offering treatment and consultation for depression, anxiety, and general emotional wellness concerns. Drew is also the author of four books, and his most recent was published last year, called Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. Dr. Ramsey has also delivered three recent TEDx talks, and his work has been featured by The Today Show, CBS Sunday Morning, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, Lancet Psychiatry, and NPR. In this excerpt, Drew and I discuss the other most important factors, in addition to food, that affect mental health and dive into the science and mechanisms of how food actually impacts our brain health, which in turn affects our mental health. We also discuss the idea of traditional dietary patterns and why they're so powerful for healing. Here's Dr. Drew Ramsey. What are some of the mechanisms of how having these nutrients, which we'll get to, because I know you have a list of nutrients that are really, really good for your brain and for your brain health. Um, how, what are some of the mechanisms of how these nutrients influence our brain our brain health to then influence, you know, the mental health challenges that we that we might face, whether it's depression or anxiety or any of the other, um, you know, diagnoses that you might make. So let's just back up for a second and talk about because you know, saying for us to sit here and say yes, food is really important, but but why, right? What does mm-hmm. it actually do?
1: I think there are probably about nine mechanisms yeah. by which we've tried to. Uh, describe how food influences mental health. And I've got some videos up on this because it's important for us to broaden our scope from omega-3 is a miracle brain molecule, and everyone mm-hmm. should take fish oil, to thinking broadly about how how food affects our mental health. So Uh, One of the ways is nutrient insufficiency. There are a lot of nutrients, very important for mood. For example, if a population doesn't eat enough zinc or doesn't eat enough uh, iron, that population is going to have a higher risk of depression. There'll be more depression among people who don't get a lot of zinc or iron. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, Another mechanism is around neuroplasticity, this new idea or that, that we can help coax and promote brain repair, the birth of new brain cells, brains featuring out and making new connection. And really this revolves around this molecule BDNF, really interesting molecule in terms of what it does in our brain, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a protein our DNA codes for that tells our brain cells uh, to do good stuff, to stay alive, to make more connections. Um, Inflammation, regulation of inflammation is another way that food influences mental health. Kind of new data, but we think at least research says like maybe a third, 40% of patients who have depression uh, are also struggling with uh, some amount of inflammation being involved. Um, We also know that when people get depressed, all their inflammatory factors go up. So, you know, there's still, researchers still really untangling uh you know what's causal and what's correlational Mm -hmm. we we know that like if you don't eat enough b12 or b9 that will cause depression definitively Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of other things that are correlated with depression that we don't know whether it causes it or just you know uh people that say start craving a lot of carbs and sweets uh, because they're depressed right right it's not that it causes it but anyway just quickly some other mechanisms We're learning about a lot about inflammation in the microbiome. So fermented foods and plants affect the microbiome. It looks like more fermented foods particularly is involved in the uh, microbiome kind of regulating, better regulating the immune system. Um, Used to sound like crazy juju wellness stuff. Now that's just like science. Right. (laughs) Right. I think there's a connection piece and eat to beat depression and anxiety. My most recent book, I have a six week plan. And the last week mm-hmm. isn't about food. It's about connecting with your uh, food community, connecting with people in your life around food, about forming more connections with you, your food supply and your food community. So I think that's a big part of it. That when we, you know, when we go out to the other night, I finished work and my wife called and said, Hey, we're meeting this other family. Let's, and we all went out to pizza and, you know, I just like was the, the this, the banter, the fun, the, right. So those, those are the kind of things that, again, that's great for my mental health. Right. I could have stayed home and eaten some wild salmon. I, you know, pizza's not the best brain food, but like, which right. one's better for my, my, exactly. my mental health? The pizza was in that yes. situation, yes. full on gluten, yes. cheese, sausage, because I, I'm in this non-isolated internet. There was also a delicious salad and some great kombucha. So don't worry. Right. I got some brain foods in there, but. Right. This is an example that, that so so connections, uh, I think there's a food SIBO effect, as I call it, which is that when I establish a set of food rules and Avanti follows them, there's a lot of psychology involved in Avanti feeling great. All of us on some level like to perform. And if there's (laughs) someone that is, we decide someone's our food girl and they say, you know. I really think this is awful. This is bad. I whatever it is. And we do that and we feel a little better because a lot of times these interventions revolve around, you know, cutting out processed foods. When you cut out gluten sure. for people, you cut out commercial baked goods. Yep. When you cut out commercial baked goods, you just reduce somebody's risk of depression. Exactly. Period.
0: Yes. Period. They're
1: highly correlated with depression. So it, it, it's, um, so, food SIBO effects, I think, are real, and I think they're welcome. I like the idea that we feel good when we make choices according to a set of values that we believe are going to help our health. We can never know. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a gentleman who's fighting um, end stage cancer; now cancer free. He's done an amazing job, but you know, he said, "Like I did all this healthy stuff. I eat vegetables every day. I still got cancer." You know, it's not—it's right. not perfect science, right? So, yeah. the, again, to say that idea that we're we're doing according to our values, what we think, what we best discern is is good according to the science in terms of promoting our health. Um,
0: And I think what you're, and one thing, sorry to interrupt you. I think what you're bringing up is a really important point is that, you know, you're specifically in nutritional psychiatry, but nutrition is not just about the food. It's about the connection. It's about these other things that are feeding you, right? And that's exactly, I feel like that's what you're saying. And and I know from an Ayurvedic lens, that is so much about is so much what I talk about, that all of these aspects of life influence our health, our, you know, ability to either go down that path to illness or that path to health and connection relationships are one of those things. So. You know, and for and, you culture,
1: right? I'd be really interested to hear Avanti a, a little about your your experience as an eater because I think so many eaters are in this either mixed culture mm-hmm. from from a mixed cultures and so defining it for themselves is a little challenging or have been displaced from their culture mm-hmm. for for whatever you know reasons some some good some not right uh, so uh, and, I, and I'm wondering for you the kind of connection between the traditional foods of your family and your mental health. It's
0: a really good point. You know, I grew up eating mostly Indian food, home-cooked Indian food that my mom would make. My mom was a homemaker. And, you know, of course, it's not a coincidence that for the first 18 years of my life, when I was living at home, I had no mental health challenges. Um, Now, of course, you know, a lot of my struggles with depression Re- and even anxiety started when I was in my medical training, which, you know, we can get on that's, that's a whole nother reason that it's like, know. that's like
1: baseline. I mean, like <laughs> I mean that's baseline. Up, like, yeah, exactly. Really, uh...
0: But it also correlates with me not eating a lot of those traditional foods that I grew up with. Right. And, and uh, adopting a very Western diet that didn't have a lot of those spices and those anti-inflammatory you know, you, I'm
1: starting to interview, you do the opposite of the studies, right? All of the studies are we're going to take people <laughs> on a crappy Western diet and we're going to put them on a right. traditional diet. You go from eating this traditional diet, we you know, literally right. we'd all prescribe for mental health. Yeah. And to this like Western diet.
0: Right. Yeah. And it, and it correlates exactly with my, you know, as soon as the depression and anxiety started to show up for me as a young adult, you know, a new mom, newly married, all of those things all of those things had an impact, but definitely there is a connection there. And, you know, it's actually interesting because I I was reading your work and you have this concept of traditional dietary patterns, which I find really fascinating for this exact reason. Can you tell us more about sort of what you mean by that, the traditional dietary patterns?
1: Uh, when I when I speak to the public, I show a slide. It's on the back porch in New York City. We had this little cute, uh, tiny apartment when we first started having kids, and my daughter's sitting on my lap, and we're eating. It. We've got like a big bowl of mussels with the broth in it, and we're like eating out of it together. And and I kind of uh, say, "Look, I, I apologize that, that we're going to be talking a lot about nutrients, but it's a shame to reduce this lovely scene, this young doctor and his daughter having all the good bonding stuff going on." that the only value of these muscles is that they have lots of B12 and lots of DHA. And so to, and for a lot of times in medicine, for, you know, lots of good reasons have been kind of obsessed with that. We want to know like <laughs> if you have low B12, what happens to your risk of dementia? But usually right. people don't just have low B12, right? That comes from someplace mm-hmm. their Their gut is disrupted. They have a little autoimmune illness. They um, are not eating a set of few foods that have B12. So, uh, you know, the dietary pattern allows us to think more broadly about our foods. One, so we're not obsessed with like one superfood. The two that we're not just obsessed with um, one way of thinking about food. What traditional dietary pattern mean is that the stuff that's on your plate is not highly processed food. It's, it's food that existed in 1900. It's food that existed in 1800 it's food that existed 3000 years ago. Right. Some people like to break this up. The paleolithic people would like to say like agriculture was evil. Grains are evil. Beans are evil. I mean, I, I think there's just a lot of data that goes against all of that. Um, mm-hmm. Do I think people have challenges with a lot of different foods? Sure. Is mm-hmm. it important for all of us to experiment and kind of mix it up and, and especially if you're having challenges, entertain ideas around food sensitivities or food categories that our body just doesn't like at this point in our life. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all important, but dietary patterns. So, so in nutritional psychiatry and, and as a clinician, what I really focus on in a dietary pattern is increasing nutrient density. Okay. I'm going to look at it realistically as let's say you're, I don't know, 2000, 2500 calories a day, right? For those calories. I'm wondering, can I, how many omega-3 fats can I get into that brain? Can I, you know, top out all of the most important nutrients for depression, 100%, 150%? Can I get enough magnesium and zinc and potassium for that number of calories? And can I avoid foods that are, besides the nutrition, maybe going to counteract my efforts? Can I avoid foods that are going to promote weight gain and diabetes? Can I avoid foods that are going to promote depression and anxiety? Mm-hmm. And so as we're thinking about a dietary pattern, thinking that all the data says it's a traditional dietary pattern. So these are going to be whole foods we're picking. Our, our um, antidepressant food scale is an open source paper that Laura LaChance, a fellow psychiatrist and colleague uh, published uh, that anybody can look up where, where we mm-hmm. basically asked, what are the most important nutrients for depression? We found 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always going to evolve and change. And there were some, you know, sure. it is like, they're in all my books and all my talks, and I believe in the science, but it didn't make this list. Like the, there aren't fermented foods on this list because you can't mm-hmm. really calculate that exactly. There aren't uh, phytonutrients aren't considered in this list, but but these twelve traditional nutrients things, you know, not the usual suspects. Some surprising potassium, selenium, uh, B six, but you know the the usual suspects: omega three fats, iron, zinc, uh, magnesium, B twelve, B nine, B one. We just asked what foods, what whole natural foods have the most of these per calorie. Mm-hmm. We created this list of uh, antidepressant foods, the both plant and animal foods, with the idea. You know, number one on the plant list is watercress. It's not like, oh, that's why you're depressed. You haven't been eating watercress. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it's more. This list helped us see food categories. That the watercress is on there. So is a bunch of other leafy greens. And mm-hmm. leafy greens are on there because leafy greens are mostly water. They've got a lot of nutrition, lots of different nutrients, lots of vitamin C, lots of uh, folate, some fiber, uh, 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 you know, a bunch of interesting phytonutrients. And there, there's almost no calories, right? 20, right. 30, 40 calories a cup. So um and there are also lots of rainbow, colorful vegetables, peppers, and cruciferous vegetables on this list. On the animal side, it was fish, seafood, mm-hmm. bivalves in particular, three of the top five were mussels, clams, and oysters. Oysters were the top food for, for animals. And again, that's because these are very nutrient-dense foods. One oyster, an East Coast oyster, has 10 calories,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and, and, and is uh, almost has 100% of your daily need of zinc, mm-hmm. uh, just one. 10 calories to note 42% of Americans don't meet the recommended daily allowance for zinc. So is oyster the answer for everybody's a lot of people don't know how to eat oysters or don't like oysters or aren't near, but that said, it's never been a food that's been promoted or recommended or encouraged based on the fact that it has all of these nutrients that our brain needs. And that for the most part, human brains have always eaten these foods. So, um, but that's a long-winded explanation to dietary pattern. There's a lot of different ways. Right now that in, in there's like a dietary pattern, it's like it's there's a vegan dietary pattern or there's a carnivore dietary pattern. You better pick one soon, folks, because mm-hmm. I mean I really it's become so um, I guess, you know, mostly sad to me that the nuance of nutrition, personal nutrition, the nuance of animals within our ecosystem, food system the way that there are multiple different roles that those, those play for us right. and multiple different ethical challenges for us besides uh, you know, some, some of maybe the obvious ones. You know, uh that are certainly the way we do meet now for a lot right. of folks is not, is not a win. Yeah, uh, uh, But uh, it's just tr- sad to me that instead of focusing on mental health, instead of focusing on food security, instead of focusing on the deep connections that food can provide us, Mm-hmm. It's become this really polarizing thing, right? You know, that we're filled with a lot of misinformation. Gosh, there's so much information about tea. Can you believe how much? Have you seen some of misinformation about kale? I mean, you're a doctor, like literally, yeah. kale. If you Google low <laughs> oxalate diet, kale <laughs> is like top. of Like you will be put on kale. People are like what leafy green can I get that doesn't have oxalates? It's like kale, kale or bok choy, but kale. So the idea that you know somehow the internet's full of all this stuff that like kale's. Filled with anti-nutrients that sucks all the nutrition out of. I mean, it's really. Uh, right. I, I think it just goes to show you some people don't realize how confused folks are, and how important it is whenever someone has a platform to be really responsible yes. when we think about recommendations when it comes right. to uh, human health. But anyway. Yeah,
0: I agree, and you know, I think you, again, you're getting to a point that I. I really talk a lot about with, you know, my students and my clients and, you know, people that I teach, um, which is, you know, everything is good. Not everything is good for everyone. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that, you know, there is, you know, there is no one set way to eat and it is very personalized, but there are some general things that we can all follow, which is, I think what you're getting at with this traditional dietary pattern, which is to go back, to the way that our grandmothers and great-grandmothers and grandfathers ate, which is, you know, as balanced as they could with a lot of whole foods that came from the earth that were not processed and doing a variety of foods, right? I mean, that's what I'm hearing. And also depending culturally, right? I'm South Asian. I came from a family that was vegetarian uh, religiously. And so we didn't eat a lot of, I mean, there was no animal protein. There was no animal sources of these nutrients. And that's what I grew up with, right? But that doesn't mean that that should be the way it is for everyone. And if I am, you know, facing a health challenge like depression, it's, it, you know, it's a good idea for me to try some fish, which I have, and it's well, helped it, I immensely.
1: Share with everybody. Cause maybe I'm a little, I don't know, different uh, about this clinically, but I think it's important. It's very intentional that, that if I were working with Avanti and I heard that mm-hmm. I'd really first want to hear about the meaning of a vegetarian diet to her, how it fits into her culture. I think so often physicians hear this and they think, Oh, you're a woman, you're vegetarian, you know, you're not getting enough iron. You have depression, right. you're not getting them against free fats. You should be eating wild salmon. Why aren't you wanting salmon? Yep. And it's, like, and, and it's, a, it's a really, it's a way that that bias enters in, in all kinds of ways in medicine. That's really unfortunate when it comes to nutrition, mm-hmm. There are lots of ways for Avanti to eat a perfectly uh, uh, a vegetarian diet. That's in line, especially with her religious beliefs uh, and not eat seafood. Right. And, and, and if she wants to make that choice to try, I mean, I'm always really honored to be a clinician who's in right. that space with somebody with like, Maybe it's going to be disgusting. You know, maybe she's going to go fall in love with sushi and beating like, you know, eating right. like fish eggs all the time. Who knows? But right. you know, being in someone's corner to help them sort that out is really one of the you know, first of all, stances, I think, of nutritional psychiatry that I really try to promote.
0: I really appreciate that because that's exactly pretty much what happened to me with the integrative psychiatrist that I worked with, you know, here in Chicago, who's a friend of mine now. Um, And he kind of said the same thing to me that, you know, Avanti, I get it. You're vegetarian and this is what the data shows. And I do think that this will help you. And so with that kind of dialogue with the clinician who really cares and is really hearing me, Right. Because doctors need doctors too. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I was willing to make that change. And I do feel that it has helped me. You know, and I think it's again, it gets back to this idea that, oh, you know, people will say to me, Ayurveda, well, it's very much a vegetarian way of life. Well, okay. It was written that way in the Vedic texts and perhaps assumed because of cultural and religious uh, influences, but it's not exactly ever said that it has to be vegetarian. And so, you can be non-vegetarian and, and follow an Ayurvedic lifestyle. And so I think this is sort of what you're getting at is that you, you really have to meet people where they are um, to help them and becoming positional about things and saying, no, you must have clams and oysters and this and that because you have depression and you want to get over depression. Well, But there are other ways you know, to do that this feels like a really good place to end our time together. If I offer up the phrase to you to catalyze healing,
1: what comes up for you? Eat more fermented foods. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> right now. I mean, I think that I realize some people don't like them. They don't fit for everybody. So I'm going to say that's for the people who are okay, trying some fermented foods, but I think the microbiome diversity data is good. And that's the most actionable step. If you don't like fermented foods, you don't like that answer. I would say to catalyze healing, the most important thing for you to do is try to have a deeper conversation. Doesn't Mm -hmm. matter who that's with or whether it's just with yourself. I just think in my, in my practice of psychiatry, I'm amazed at how deep into conversation and process we can get with other individuals, even people, a lot of people don't know me very well and And suddenly we're in some of some of the richest parts of their mind, and so I think that's all all of us have that capacity. I don't have them you know've I've gotten a lot of experience sitting and listening, so it's, it's valuable, right? It's like a meditation for me now to sit and be with right. people, in that not but but we all have that capacity to deepen our listening and to then deepen our experience with other people. so I think that 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 process and thinking of that process, that deepening, deepening of uh, our connections with others, deepening of our capacity for kindness and tolerance. I think that's uh, that 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 catalyzes that, that catalyzes healing for me because that's actually the pinnacle of health.
0: The next excerpt for this compilation of the healing journey with food is with Dr. Uma Naidu. Dr. Naidu has been described as a triple threat, as she's a board-certified psychiatrist, a nutritionist, and a professional chef. She's the director of nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry at Mass General Hospital on the faculty at Harvard Medical School and a leading voice in the fields of nutritional psychiatry and culinary medicine. She's also the author of the national bestselling book, This Is Your Brain on Food, in which she dives into cutting edge science to explain the ways in which food contributes to our mental health and how a sound diet can help treat and prevent a wide range of psychological and cognitive health issues from ADHD to anxiety, depression, OCD and others. In this excerpt, Uma and I talk about what the microbiome is, how it works, and its connection to brain health and mental health. Here's Dr. Naidu. In your book, This is Your Brain on Food, which is, you know, been a bestseller since it came out. It's it's an amazing book. You know, you talk about the connection between our gut our brain, and then our plate. So I'd love to break that down a little bit and really get into, you know, what is this connection between the gut and the brain, specifically the gut microbiome. So let's break it down for my listeners so they can really understand, because I think, you know, especially during this month of mental health awareness, there's a lot of talk about the gut microbiome, the gut brain, all of these things. And these terms are thrown around, but like, what does that actually really mean? Let's,
2: let's start there. I think that's a great question. So the if you think about the gut itself, the gut is part of the digestive tract. And neuroscience in the last two decades has shown us that uh, there are about 39 odd trillion microbes that live in the gut. When we talk about the genetic material associated with them, we call it the gut microbiome. So these microbes live in the gut. There are five different types. Most studied are bacteria. That's why we tend to talk about them more often. But the gut and the brain are also connected. And these are organs that are far apart in the body. We wouldn't think that they're connected. But they actually arise from the exact same cells in the human embryo. They divide up to form these two organs. And then they remain connected throughout life by a text messaging system, which I like to call the vagus nerve. Love it. Um, the vagus nerve is, uh, you know, the wandering nerve in the body, and it allows for bidirectional uh, text messages between these two organ systems all the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So they are communicating. But then there's more information. We now know that about ninety percent of serotonin and the serotonin receptors are in the gut. Serotonin is the happiness hormone. It's the reason that people are prescribed selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac or SSRIs and there's several others as well. So these two organ systems are communicating and when we eat, we eat either some healthy meals and the breakdown products of those impact those gut microbes in a positive way. If we are going through the fast food lane every single day and that's what we're eating, then the bad microbes in the, in the gut microbiome. Uh, they begin to thrive. So added sugars, and if you're eating candy, candy and cake all the time, those microbes thrive. And when they thrive, the breakdown products of digestion are toxic. And those toxic products start to damage a single cell lining of the gut. So that's where you develop conditions like leaky gut over time. And so you want to think about it as an ecosystem that is really there to help help us uh, with many different conditions because those gut microbes also deal with vitamin production, sleep and circadian rhythm, which is your internal body clock, Um, uh, uh, immunity, you know, uh, hormone production. They deal with so many different things and also help mental health. So you want to, you know, consider the gut microbiome and the gut microbes a part of functioning well. So you want to feed them with healthy foods.
0: Right. Okay. And so... So what you're saying, if I can recap a little bit, is that, you know, the, the brain and the gut, they come from the same embryonic structures and divide, divide, divide. That's why they're connected, you know, um, structurally, physiologically. But then what you're saying about the gut microbiome is that there are these bacteria that live in our gut that actually help us, right? That basically um, sustain the gut lining to produce things that we need. For our brain to function correctly. Yes. Yes. Right. All of that is correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that the food that we eat can either support that microbiome or disrupt it. That's right. Right. So basically that's how the gut microbiome is so connected. And that's why it's so important is what you're
2: saying. It's super important because those microbes are dealing not just with mental health; they're dealing with pretty much all the systems in our body. Mm-hmm. What's newer that we've understood is that these microbes are so closely involved in our mental health function, and um, you know we want to want to take care of them for for all good reasons.
0: Right, and so let's talk a little bit more, maybe about the the gut my, microbiome and sort of what are some of the components of that microbiome that. Um, that have been studied, that we're seeing, there's a connection between either mental health challenges or any other challenges. What is some of the 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 science there?
2: Right. So one of the conditions we talked about the good microbes and the bad microbes, and we talked about how they can be nurtured or 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 fed with um, more negative products that break mm-hmm. down. When when you get a build up of those negative products, bad microbes are thriving. Um, they create more toxic. Uh, breakdown products, they damage the single cell lining. And that's when you get conditions like leaky gut develop over time, but that's also called intestinal permeability. What's also happening in the gut is there becomes this imbalance of good and bad microbes, and that is called dysbiosis. Through the process of dysbiosis, a lot of things can happen. I have seen in individuals, and remember, this is not immediate, Although microbes respond, bacteria and microbes respond within two hours to to food, to stress, to many different things, you don't necessarily see those changes immediately. Mm-hmm. But what I have seen in mental health is an uptick of anxiety, a worsening of depression, new onset of symptoms um, as someone has a more and more, uh, more dysbiosis in their gut. It can also, however, show up as skin conditions. Um, headaches and different different things in your body. So it's not just gastrointestinal discomfort that you may have, like gas, bloating, diarrhea, pain. Mm-hmm. Um, you might actually have a, a, have a symptom elsewhere in your body, and you don't think about the fact that it's connected. So you, I, the more and more that I'm studying the gut microbiome, the more I feel like it's it's almost like a central um, area of the body. So the brain is brain, of course, can controls everything, but the gut is really considered the second brain because of the number of nerves um, in the enteric nervous system that, that's around it and that work there. And, and the more I think about it and, and learn about it, the more I see how it is involved in so much in our body, Yeah, especially our mental health.
0: Yeah. And so it's so interesting, you know, we're both South Asian and so it, it, it goes back to Ayurveda right? That the digestion was always the central, uh, aspect. And that is where we always start is with the digestion. So we knew this somehow many, many thousands of years ago.
2: i has known it. Um, Hippocrates knew that there's a connection. Mm-hmm. This, the, the, sort of, I suppose the Western based research had to follow. And, yes. uh, you know, I, I feel like many individuals who either practice diet better or who have really paid attention even to digestion. Um, Or, you know, growing up, my grandmother would always talk about spices and what Mm -hmm. she would be adding somewhere and this medicinal benefit that her mother had told her and her great-aunts had taught her. And, you know, I would eat it and happily enjoy something. But now I've, of course, understood the scientific value behind that, that, this actual uh, real, real data now to right. say, you know, there's a reason ginger is what it is or turmeric is the way it right. is.
0: And so why do you think, this is just a, maybe a more philosophical question to ask is that, you know, if we knew this and Hippocrates knew this, right. The father of medicine as we would say,
2: right.
0: why did we get so far away from that? You know, in our training, the time that you and I probably trained, we weren't taught anything about nutrition in medical school, True. right? We had to go Barely. and look. For the information, why did we get so far from this, do you think?
2: I feel that certainly in the United States, certain things happen. There's the industrialization of food, mm-hmm. um, farming and agriculture changed. Uh, people wanted their lives to be more convenient. So when things like the microwave were invented or frozen dinners, yeah. these became conveniences for busy families, busy women. Um, women join the workforce, so many things changed and evolved, and, and I'm not necessarily giving it in the correct time sequence, but right. they've all impacted different things. Sure. But you know, the food industry is, is the food industry is there to make money. Mm-hmm. They're not there to take care of our health. And right. I think that by the food labeling and what we know is done to processed and packaged food, you know, not, they, there isn't much emphasis, Even even though I will say a lot of the large companies have extensive research and development arms who do now pay attention to more wellness-based criteria and more nutritionally-based criteria. For the most part, things like high fructose corn syrup were added to food. Mm -hmm. Things like um, low fat became a huge craze and we now understand that was actually very bad for our health. Right. So even though out of sequence, many different things happened over time and industrialization really changed the food system. Now, how do we walk ourselves back from that?
0: Mm-hmm,
2: right. Where we are reliant on convenience. We ha- have learned what fast foods are. Other parts of the world crave being like the United mm-hmm. States. So they love fast food. And so the obesity epidemics in children in China uh, and things like that. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard to know where and when things really almost fell off fell off and right. changed so much. But I think we have to find our way back. Mm-hmm. And I think the pandemic, surprisingly, for some people, was a way to do that. Yes. For others, it has been harder. So everyone has had challenges in different ways. But where I'm at with this is I feel that, you know, I'm here to change our conversation around our relationship with food. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it speaks to exactly what you said. If we don't do this for ourselves now, and it doesn't mean we have to eat a healthy meal every single Minute of every single day, because it's really not on the. It's really not about what you have in your plate today or the number on your scale tomorrow. It's about this ongoing experience relationship with a healthier lifestyle. And one of those biggest factors, one of the biggest factors in lifestyle, is nutrition. We know nutrition impacts most, if not all, of the major diseases and leads to death. Um, from chronic illness, right. especially and one of the things we can actually change and adjust is how we eat. Mm-hmm. So I feel it's a low hanging fruit for people. If we just think about it more deeply and we start to pay attention, but right. I guess it's, you know, it requires for someone to be open to that too.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with everything that you said. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's so multifaceted because there's the the food industry, our food system, but then on the other side, there's the medical system, right? And sort of, I think what I, what I'm getting at is, you know, what went went wrong in the medical system as far as how we were trained and getting away from this understanding that food and the digestion is so important, even though we may not have had the science, we had the ancestral knowledge that this, that this was true. And so it's just, it's sort of like, where did we go wrong where we went so far off the path that we weren't taught about nutrition in medical school?
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm part of an advocacy group uh, through the Harvard Tate School of uh, Public Health and um, through the Department of Nutrition at Harvard, where I'm faculty as well. And that's a, what, what we're exactly trying to address, Avanti, is that you know, medical education needs to include nutrition education. The two cannot be separated anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's a slow and and steady uphill battle, but, you know, we have small wins now and again, and that's, you know, there are only a certain very few medical schools who even include nutrition now, some are better than others, but research, as you know, has been written about the gap and, um, I'm not sure where we went from. Maybe we got so highly specialized in the different organ systems, but we kind of left out nutrition, which kind of relates to all the organ systems. <laughs> it's sort of, been, it's kind of interesting to me. Right. So, and, and also I think that, um, you know, one of the things I talk about is sort of medicines being so siloed. It's not that doctors don't communicate. It's that the organ systems are so siloed. Right. So, you know, we, we efficient at communicating as part of our training, but we often don't really think sometimes of an integrated and holistic approach. And really, I feel like the way that I work in mental health has been based on my, my cultural heritage, how I was raised, how I was raised to think. Mm -hmm. And so it was always important to me, you know, I I will say simple things to to individuals and they some some grasp it and some don't you know having a sense of community eating with your family sitting down to eat being mindful when you eat shutting the television off right having your phone buzzing you know well there, there are days i have that going on in my life i know it's not ideal and i try more often than not to move towards that healthier norm because it's not just the food on the plate right yeah. it's, it's everything that surrounds that because that helps we know that when we are less stressed we eat healthier uh, but when we're more stressed we make those unfortunate choices because right. stress have stress precipitates habit circuits in the brain so it's all of this it's all of those things
0: yeah no i i i appreciate you indulging me in that difficult question because there's not an easy answer but it's just you know interesting to think about what are some of the connections between you know gut health and then brain health as it relates to some of these memory and brain fog types of issues
2: I think the conversation in Alzheimer's where that needs to change in relation to food is the fact that we think of Alzheimer's and cognitive disorders as a disease of our parents, our grandparents, our mother-in-laws, our Mm -hmm. aunts and uncles, when in fact there are subtle brain changes that occur very early on, which may or may not lead to Alzheimer's or cognitive disorders. Mm -hmm. But those brain changes early on can be reversed by how we eat and our lifestyle factors. So neuroinflammation gets set up and the one thing we can do with neuroinflammation is change how we're eating. So that's a powerful thing to know. That of course does not exclude the fact that we don't have a cure or that we um we 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 know and we research every single day more and more that we can about Alzheimer's. But the one thing that is remediable is is something that impacts inflammation, and that can be done through our food. So it's an easy, um, an easy hack, really, to start to eat healthier from an early age, because we don't know that we can reverse some changes that may not end up as you know members of my family or or, or your family um, have. So that's a that's the first thing to realize that we have some tools right in front of us. Uh, we don't even have to get fancy. We just have to kind of clean up our eating a little bit and start to think about it more. But things like exercise become important. Mindfulness become important. Outdoor time become important. So I want I want people to start thinking about Alzheimer's and cognitive disorders. as something we're we'll dealing with from whatever age we're at. and. An important factor that, that is remediable is cutting back on those processed, ultra processed junk foods, the highly sugared foods, the sugar-sweetened beverages, the processed vegetable oils, the artificial sweeteners, the stuff that we know is impacting ultimately our brain cells. Sugar is one of, one of the biggest issues.
0: Yeah, I think that that's such an important point that you made is that you know this is not something to start thinking about when you're in your forties and fifties, but to actually think about it for your children when they're younger and, you know, they're teens and even younger, but, you know, I have two college age kids. And so to really help them understand how inflammation in the body is also inflammation in the brain. I think that sometimes we forget that, that these two things are connected and that, you know, we're so focused on inflammation in the body that we forget that, brain inflammation causes so many of these cognitive and mood disorders and symptoms that
2: come up. That's right. And that was a reason to bring forth my book and my research and work in nutritional psychiatry because, you know, that the connection between the gut and the brain and mental health is less known. And the impact of uh, when people think about inflammation, they often think, well, they, they do need to know it's a healthy process that protects the body. So right. if you fall and scrape, you scrape your leg, you know, inflammation is there to help heal. Right. But we're talking about chronic and insidious inflammation, things brought on by stress and diet is one of the big factors. Um, and people don't make the connection, just like they don't make a connection and they take a headache pill, They don't make a connection that inflammation is also connected in different parts of the body. Um, and, you know, I've seen individuals who may have mental health symptoms and a skin rash. And, you know, over time, by helping to reduce inflammation, we know that we can help our guts heal and sort of get to a better place in 28 days, depending on the severity of dysbiosis. Yes. It would be different for each person, but we know it takes about that time. But if they consistently do that, I've I've seen individuals over time Improve with skin rashes, along with mental health symptoms. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's connected. Everything is. is, is, We need to think about it in that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it's a beautiful point to bring up that you know, again, you can add some of these things into your diet that are anti-inflammatory, antioxidant to help with your brain health, help with your mood, help with the dysbiosis that's going on in your gut, and it's all going to help not only your cognitive function and your mood but also these other issues that you might be having. And so it's like, I mean, it's sort of in a way, the miracle cure to help with so many different things is what's on our plate, right? It's much more powerful. Yeah, Yeah, it's extremely powerful. And it's powerful not only to say it in that way, but I think it's powerful because as you said before, it gives patience, it gives people something to work with. It gives them something that they can say, okay, I can take this back in my hands and I can do something, right? I can actually do something that's going to help my health. I may not know exactly how it's going to work, but I know it's going to start to shift things, you know. You mentioned 28 days. So, you know, you are in clinical practice and you've been seeing thousands of patients probably by now. How long does it usually take for something a plan where you are shifting your diet and your dietary practice? How long does it take to start seeing some effects?
2: So I've had, I've had people have different responses. And part of this mm-hmm. is also based on the fact that the microbiome is like a thumbprint, right? So it's different for each individual. Yes. So more and more in my practice, Vanti, from, from more generalized plans, I've really moved into many, m- much more precision medicine and sort of individualized mm-hmm. nutritional psychiatry plans. A general guidance though, is I'll have people contacting me out within a week saying, I'm starting to feel better. Wow. I made these changes and these few changes, and I'm really starting to notice I'm either sleeping better or my mm. digestion is getting mm. better or I'm feeling less foggy. Mm. And this, but it was, but in general, it's a, it usually I, I feel comfortable saying within three weeks to a month, you're starting to really gain traction with the changes because these are not, this is not, the, the headache pill that works in ten minutes, right, or twenty right. minutes. This does take time. It's um, that's why you know I say to people, if it's your birthday and you want a piece of cake, it's okay. I just don't want you eating that piece of cake every single day because right. that's when the piece of cake becomes your lifestyle habit versus the opposite, right? Exactly. The the healthier habits becoming your everyday life. Um, so I've, I've I've had a varied number of uh, responses, but some people um, within, you know, week to 10 days start to do well or notice changes, I should say, but usually they, those changes really start to impact their condition within two weeks to a month.
0: That's amazing. I mean, even for you to say that, yeah, it may not be as fast as a headache pill that you take and, you know, an hour later you're feeling better, but for something to be able to shift how you are feeling in two to four weeks is pretty incredible. I just want to sort of like click into that and highlight that, that that is an incredible response and that's very, very powerful and very doable. You know, we can do
2: anything for two weeks. We can do anything for two weeks. And what happens is the more that our bodies get used to it. And I mentioned those individuals who called and contact me within a week. That's when the, uh, when the momentum sets up, people want to do more.
0: The listeners can't see you, but there's a huge (laughs) smile on your face as we're talking about the power of seeing these changes in patients within two to four weeks. There's nothing more gratifying as, as a, as a practitioner than to see the transformation that happens, um, for patients, you know, and how they feel so empowered. So I really, I really love that. And your smile is huge. So um, <laughs> I know that you're really, that's why you're doing the work that you're doing. And so this feels like a good place to end our time together. And so if I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you?
2: To catalyze healing, pay attention to what's on your plate, you know, pay attention to what you're eating. Because it's it's sort of the theme of what we've spoken about today in terms of if we we can pay attention, identify. It. We can actually create a catalyst towards our better, better health.
0: The last excerpt in this compilation of the healing journey with food is with Dr. Kunshan Koya. Dr. Koya has a PhD in molecular biology from Harvard Medical School, which she combines with her training from the Institute of Integrative Nutrition to elevate the health of families with science and flavor. Kunshan, who many of you know as Chief Spice Mama on Instagram, is also the founder of Spice Spice Baby, which brings to light the science-based benefits of ancient spices and inspires their use. In kids' and families' foods in simple and delicious ways. In this excerpt, we talk about the history of spices, the bioactive ingredients in spices, and the emerging data and studies showing the clear health benefits of culinary doses of spices. Dr. Koya also dives into the five beginner spices that she recommends, along with the health benefits and how to use them. Here's Dr. Koya.
3: grew up with this ancient wisdom. I don't know that I connected the dots yet in my head about sort of molecular biology and science and food and health, but all these things were of interest to me in parallel. And then when I was at my lab at Harvard Medical School studying cancer biology, um, my lab began to do a screen looking at the effects of certain molecular compounds on cancer cells and one of the compounds in the screen that I was involved with, involved with was curcumin which is the bioactive compound in turmeric and i have to say i vividly remember that moment because i was like wait what turmeric like my entire family reveres <laughs> turmeric and thinks right. it's this cure-all for everything. Right. You know, you have a burn wound, you put turmeric on it, you have a sore throat, you gargle with turmeric and sea salt, you drink golden milk, you you eat it often. Like it's considered this panacea when it comes to Ayurveda. And I only re- learned later on that Ayurveda actually has a term for it called Jayanti, which means that which can cure everything. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, here I am fast forward to you know, one of the world's most renowned research institutions and we're studying turmeric in the screen. Like what is happening
0: right now? (laughs) It's amazing, right? Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it was really a full circle moment. I had rolled my eyes at a lot of the ancient wisdom as a kid in India. It was too close to home. I took it for granted. And here I was suddenly being like, okay. there might be something to all this intuitive knowledge that our ancestors had around these incredible natural ingredients. Right, It was a planting of the seed moment for me. I dabbled in some biotech pharma stuff after graduating from my PhD. And then I had another very vivid moment that I remember where I asked myself, what would I wanna do if no one cared what I did with my resume, my degree, what does my heart really want to do what does my soul really want to do and it was clear to me that it had to be something at the intersection of my foodie obsessions and my science obsession and my health obsession and so i put it all together started the blog spice spice baby in 2014 thinking it was going to be a passion project right and it just evolved and grew from there into what is now you know this platform this educational movement like you said spice science kind of focused yes. and It's uh, every day is a little bit of a pinch me moment that I actually get to do this um, and call it work. So I'm so grateful.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. Thank you for sharing that, you know, and so many of the things that you were saying are, you know, really resonate with me because, you know, I too sort of rolled my eyes and kind of just went along with whatever I grew up with. It was just the way we did things. We ate dal chawal, which is dal and rice and sabzi, which is a vegetable mix. And it had all those spices, haldi and mirchi and zira, which is cumin, all these different spices that were always put into our food. And we kind of just, I did, I took it for granted. I was like, oh, that's just the way we cook Indian food. And it was sort of the same thing of having these aha moments in my training in medicine of you know reading studies and research about the newest data on a different spice or on yoga or meditation and thinking oh my god these are things my family have they've been doing this for generations and i was like oh yeah that's a nice practice it makes my grandfather really chill and very wise and you know but i didn't understand i didn't connect the dots until much later. And I'm seeing the science and the data and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I totally missed the boat on this. Like I didn't understand it before. And now I do. So I really resonate with that sort of journey that you had of those aha moments of the light bulbs going off of, wow. Okay. Let's turn to spices because that is really your zone of genius and your specialty of really, really bringing together sort of, The data and the research on the spices, and then actually how do we use them in real life? But let's start with the history of spices, because it's very interesting in how they've been this thing that is very revered throughout history. So let's talk about that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I always tell people when you walk down your grocery store spice aisle and you see your typical like paprika, turmeric, now pretty much you see like every spice or spice blend, you know, especially at a store like whole foods, even Trader Joe's, you might literally think nothing of it and think it's no big deal. But if you go back thousands of years ago, spices literally shaped humanity's kind of geography and history in really profound ways. They were prized commodity crops the quest for their kind of control and distribution literally led to wars. Um, You know, Christopher Columbus was supposedly looking for spices when he accidentally stumbled upon the shores of America. I mean, obviously, that's a whole complicated, you know, history. But even um, the colonizers who stumbled upon the coast of India were looking for spices. And there is this story that apparently they leapt off the ship on the coast of Kerala and said, you know, for Christ and spices or something like that. Mm So these crops were revered by people who understood their value. So they were used back in the day for so many different reasons. They were used as medicine, but they were also used in food preservation because refrigeration wasn't really a thing. So adding spices to especially like foods that tend to spoil easily was a way to prolong their shelf life. They were also incredible, they are, incredibly tricky to grow. Um, Harvesting cardamom, for example, which is probably one of my favorite spices, is um, backbreaking work. So it's, you know, the commoditization of them and the free availability of them is a modern phenomenon. So for centuries, our ancestors actually really had to work hard to find them and then even harder to monopolize their trade. So I think that's just a perspective that many of us aren't familiar with and it kind of sets the context for why these are so special. And then if you look at, you know, ancient medical systems, of course, you know better than anyone else, Ayurveda has revered spices and herbs for centuries as Mm -hmm. medicine. And I think what makes spices really unique compared to other functional foods found in nature, we know pretty much everything that we get from nature has some incredible health benefit on our bodies you can find you know something positive as long as it's a whole food from nature spices i think are unique in that they're very concentrated sources of these beneficial compounds now we have terminology for it you know back then in ayurveda it was jayanti now we know it's polyphenols and phytochemicals or bioflavonols or whatever chemistry speak you want to put around basically these plant-based compounds that seem to be very concentrated in spices. And what is very exciting to me is when I first started this work and started diving into the literature and the research, yes, I found lots of interesting data on spices and their benefits, different compounds they have, their antioxidant properties, or their ability to fight inflammation. But a lot of these studies were focused on kind of test tube model. So it would be isolating compounds from spices or using large amounts of spice in a test tube setting. And you had to wonder how relevant is this in the context of the whole human body. So I was always very cautious about interpreting the modern science around spice benefits, but I have to say the last couple of years have shown some really cool studies in humans, randomized controlled spice studies in humans, which we've never really had, Right, And I can talk about why I think that is, you know, I think yeah. it's an understudied class of plant compounds, probably because there isn't a ton of incentive to study something that you can't really patent. Right. So it's like, how much money do you want to spend writing a grant on studying the health benefits of paprika, which you could never really turn into a drug per se. Right. So I think some of the incentives may not be aligned for there to be like really high quality spice research, but Mm -hmm. there are labs that are interested in the basic science of spices. And we've had a couple of studies in the last just year or two that are now showing that spices in culinary amounts in the human body can have real positive effects on health. And that just gets me so excited and so fired up because yeah. I'm like, I knew it at an intuitive right. level. We had this body of evidence that was kind of all over the place. And now we're starting to see it come together in human trials, which I think is so cool and empowering and amazing.
0: Yeah, no, it is it is incredible. And I think that's a good point that you bring up is that so many of the studies are done on, you know, in test tubes at very high doses. Like, is that really what we're eating on a, on a regular basis in- Culinary medicine, like when we're using it in food, probably not. But I think exactly, you know, the studies that have been coming out in the past couple of years show how using these spices in culinary doses, if you will, yes, right, is actually very beneficial. Which again, we've known throughout centuries, you know, thousands of years in Ayurveda that that's true. We may not have had the data and the science behind it, but we knew it. So Let's turn to that. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of chemistry and sort of the technical terms for some of the components of spices. What would you say are a few that maybe the listeners should pay attention to, whether it's polyphenols or whatever ingredients that maybe should sort of say, oh, yeah, I, th- I need to think about that when I'm choosing spices or thinking about my health?
3: Yeah, so all spices contain these powerful chemicals. You know, they may be polyphenols, flavanols, or slight differences in their chemical structure, which leads to different nomenclature. But the semantics are kind of irrelevant. It's just chemicals in the spices that have effects in our cells. It's almost like if you think about them as like a chemistry toolkit that you can, you know, you can enjoy in for flavor, but also has health effects at a cellular molecular level. I think that's a really kind of simple way to think about it. You know some really good examples and i'm sure some listeners will be familiar with curcumin and turmeric so that's the one that's got most of the buzz and attention in research because it is a very powerful compound in test tube settings it seems even in animal models in some human studies so so turmeric and all spices probably have an array of compounds so when people talk about curcumin and turmeric. I just want to mention that because there are probably other bioactive compounds in turmeric not as yet identified. Um, And we know that the whole turmeric spice has benefits beyond just the curcumin component. Those kinds of studies have been done. And I think that's a nice reminder that while we do break down these spices into these components, ultimately what makes them really potent is the entire spice. Just like you know, eating one molecule from a leafy green vegetable versus eating the entire leafy green vegetable.
0: Yeah. And I think you're bringing up a really good point. I know we talked about this last week when we met, which is why I asked you that question kind of leading, but the point is, is that you were making even last week is that, you know, we get very hyper-focused on the specific chemical or bioactive ingredient because we can test it in Mm -hmm. Western medicine and that's fine. But then what happens is that we start seeing these packaged supplements of just curcumin or, you know, whatever, whatever ingredient it is. And people get become obsessed with having that ingredient. And they miss the point of what you're saying is that in turmeric itself, there are so many compounds that are working together. And that even though we've identified one specific active ingredient as sort of, The one that is having this anti-inflammatory effect, let's say. That doesn't mean that everything else in there isn't also creating a more powerful anti-inflammatory effect. And so I sort of want to click into that point, which is don't get so focused on the individual bioactive ingredient in a plant food or a whole food or a spice that you miss the point of eating the full molecule, you know, the whole thing together. Absolutely,
3: like right on, spot on. And I think it just, you know, brings up a point, like a broader cultural point, which is we do live in a world and a society where we feel the need for these kind of magic bullet solutions to yes. all our problems. Mm-hmm. And even spices, like I always tell people, spices will have benefits in the context of an overall healthful dietary pattern. So if you're basically eating garbage, which I'm sure no one's doing that's listening to this show, but like if you're basically just not paying attention to like honoring and nourishing your body, um, and you know, I eat garbage once in a while, so that's Mm -hmm. fine. It's like, Mm -hmm. what are you doing most of the time, right? Are you honoring your body? Are you really leveraging the power of nature? And then in the context of that overall healthy dietary pattern, spices can become really powerful. But if you're going to basically just do whatever you want and not honor your body and your health, and then try to take a curcumin supplement, (laughs) That gets me kind of, you know, gets my knickers in a knot. Yes, yes. <laughs> I get, I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Um, and I think right. Ayurveda is very much aligned with that sort of overall lifestyle intention, dietary and lifestyle pattern. But you know, that said, I will say that some of these bioactives in isolation may have benefits, and Absolutely. something they, and and we can talk about, you know, turmeric, for example. It seems like if you are struggling with an actual You know, inflammatory disease, and you need some therapeutic assistance. Sure. It may be hard to achieve therapeutic doses of curcumin and the other bioactives by just having turmeric in culinary Mm -hmm. amounts. This is for someone who's already in a disease state. Right. And in that case, there are some interesting data around the benefits of a concentrated curcumin supplement, which you should obviously always check with your doctor, your physician before trying. Right. But from an overall kind of longevity health disease prevention standpoint yes. I will say the whole spice is where the magic lies
0: yes and I, I appreciate that you said that absolutely and so you know this is not to say that one one perspective is better than the other I just think that this the the added perspective of thinking about the whole spice the whole food all of the bioactive ingredients even the ones that we haven't identified yet there is a lot of medicine in the the combination of those that we don't even know. So don't dismiss having turmeric at culinary doses in your food and also taking a supplement if you have an advanced disease disease state can also be beneficial. It's not like, oh, just because I'm taking the concentrated dose for whatever health issue that, oh, I don't need to put it in my food because you may be missing some of the other benefits that come from the whole... Turmeric spice and also the combination with other spices, right? I mean, you and I grew up in South Asian households, right? So we sort of experience this on a daily basis, this whole idea of putting certain spices together for their flavor, but there's also benefits, the health benefits. And whether we're doing tarka, which is you know tempering the spices before we add them to a dish. There's all these benefits of adding that to ghee and the fat and how that delivers the spices to the body more effectively. So there are these practices that have health benefits, even if we don't know what the science is behind them.
3: Absolutely. You read my mind. Exactly what I was going to say next was honoring the whole spice versus just the supplement and then honoring the power of spice combinations and blends. We don't really eat foods in isolation. I mean, most of us don't just eat a potato or a Mm -hmm. carrot. You know, we might eat Mm -hmm. a carrot with some oil and garlic and cumin or whatever version, you know, your household prepares vegetables in or other foods in. And I'm always fascinated by how our ancestors knew to combine certain things. Yes, Was it just happenstance that they combined, you know, spices into garam masala that now we know has all these like potent spices that have synergistic effects. Like in biology, we say synergy because literally they are acting in synergy in concert to amplify the beneficial effects Uh, like an orchestra. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the studies that I was alluding to earlier that are now coming out in humans are all using spice blends. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a really important point that you brought up. Yes, these individual spices are great, but when you combine them to enhance flavor, you're also getting these synergistic health benefits. And some of the blends in these studies are quite complex. I mean, they have like 10 spices in them. Right you know, coriander, cumin, turmeric, cardamom, um, some herbs like dried oregano, rosemary, thyme, ginger. I mean, so take your favorite like set of spices, play around, make a blend, and you're going to get even more benefits than yeah. enjoying just single spices alone.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. It brings up something for me that I get asked a lot from people. You know, when we're talking about food medicine in the context of Ayurveda, which is what I'm teaching, they'll say, well, I don't want to eat Indian food, right? And I don't know the quote Indian spices. And and I always say, that's not the point. If you go back in your culture, wherever you came from, your family's ancestry, and you look at the spices that were used in the recipes that your great grandmother used and your grandmother used, right? And maybe your mother is still using you will see there are spice combinations from every part of the world. It doesn't have to be South Asian spice combinations, right? That is the one that gets focused on when you're talking about yoga and Ayurveda and, and you know sort of these exotic sorts of spices that we will focus on. But again, the spice blends of using, you know, oregano with black pepper and garlic, I mean, there are health benefits and that's coming from a different cuisine type. So don't think that you have to be eating Indian food or South Asian food, or using those spices that are very typical in South Asian cooking to get a benefit
3: three hundred percent one of the biggest missions that I undertook when I first launched Spice Spice Baby was to debunk this myth that you have to eat I don't like the word, but like ethnic or right. you know some sort of ancestral food from India or Mexico or Thailand, like cultures that have enjoyed spices as an integral part of the cuisine. I wanted to teach people in global kitchens who eat a wide variety of food, how to spice up their everyday favorites. You can spice up your pancakes and your oatmeal, your popcorn, your lentil soup, your grilled fish, whatever, you know, your sauteed greens. You don't have to eat Indian food or whatever spiced up cuisine every day. In fact, the funny story is I love Indian food and I would eat it three times a day because I grew up there. But my husband who is basically American. He's half Indian. He's like a mutt. He's <laughs> like, I can eat Indian food maybe twice a week. You know, like the full on Val chawal Subzi is like a little too much for him on an everyday basis because he didn't grow up eating it and I get right. it. So I'm adding spices to everything I make. I challenge myself to add a spice to literally everything, even if it has nothing to do with Indian cuisine.
0: Yeah. I love this. So let's talk about some of your favorite spices and sort of how you go about doing this. Cause I know that's what everybody is thinking. It's like, okay, that's (laughs) great. But now where do I start? So maybe, maybe you could tell us maybe five or six of your favorite spices or spice blends, what's in them, maybe some of the health benefits and then like, how do you use them? You know, I know that's a lot, but let's just run through a couple.
3: Yeah. So I'll share five spices that I routinely recommend to the spice beginner. Okay. Um, Having me pick my favorite spices is a whole nother show. That's like too much. Okay. (laughs) Like picking a favorite child, but, um, so yeah, I mean, I have, I picked these five spices because I think they're incredibly versatile. They're easy to use in all kinds of food, not just Indian or whatever cuisine. Um, and they have health benefits. So number one would be turmeric. Um, I think people don't appreciate the versatility as much as they should. It's It's so gentle on the palate. It doesn't have an overwhelming flavor. You can add it to literally everything, sweet or savory. And, you know, it really does have some beautiful science-backed benefits and more and more research emerging around that. So that would be number one. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about how to use it, maybe once I've listed the five. Yeah, sure. The second, second would be cinnamon. I think everyone's familiar with cinnamon. It's the holiday spice. I always challenge people to think beyond desserts and holiday treats when it comes to cinnamon. A lot of cultures use cinnamon in savory dishes. Try adding it to your lentil or meat bolognese. Try adding it to a lentil soup. You know, um, it's, it's really more versatile than we give it credit for important to note with cinnamon is that if you are using it often and in large amounts, you want to try to find the true cinnamon variety, which comes from the island country, Sri Lanka. It's also sometimes called Ceylon cinnamon because Sri Lanka is called Ceylon. Mm -hmm. And the reason you want to do that is because regular cinnamon or the cassia variety does have a compound called coumarin, which at high enough doses can cause some liver toxicity. So it's not a big deal if you're eating cinnamon once in a while, but if you're somebody that's like routinely putting like half a teaspoon in your smoothie or your oatmeal, it's worth going out of your way to just go online and find true or sell on cinnamon. Um, So that's number two. Number three would be anything in the chili pepper family. And I know people kind of recoil at this a little bit because one of the biggest misconceptions is that spices are spicy and I don't like spicy food. So how do I eat spices and enjoy their benefits? And that's why I bring up the pepper family because there's a whole array of spices in the chili pepper family, some of which aren't spicy at all. Case in point is paprika, right? Mm-hmm. So paprika comes from the bell pepper, which is the sweet pepper. You can get sweet paprika, sometimes it's smoked to get smoked paprika. So that would be a way to enjoy some of the benefits of the chili pepper family without the heat. And then if you're like me, you can get to the like hot peppers, You know whether it's the cayenne or the red chili pepper, the Kashmiri red chili is beautiful. Mm-hmm it's really vibrant red and it's actually not that spicy. Like you could, that's a whole world to explore, but at least starting with paprika is a nice way to get some of that capsaicin, which is the active compound in the chili pepper family. And there's a cousin in paprika, not really called capsaicin, um, which has some really beautiful anti-inflammatory benefits and has been shown to interact favorably with the gut microbiome. So third was chili. Fourth would be cardamom. Um, I just think, you know, as a child growing up in India, I would pretty much regularly accidentally bite into a whole cardamom pod in some rice dish or curry that my aunts or my mom made. And I would be like, oh my gosh, what is that? It's intense. Like if you've ever bitten into the whole pod and had the seeds burst in your mouth, um, I learned that they use cardamom in like chewing gum, like Wrigley's or whatever gum, I don't, you know, whatever Trident. It's a breath freshener. It used to be used in Ayurveda as a breath freshener. So it has antibacterial properties. It's great for digestion. They say just the scent of it alone can calm nausea. So sometimes, you know, people will message me saying, how do I deal with morning sickness? I'm pregnant. I'm like, try making some cardamom tea and just the scent alone might help. I mean, there's no downside, you know, even if it doesn't work. Right, absolutely. (laughs) And the nicest thing about cardamom, I think is that you can add it to sweet and savory dishes. And when you add it to sweet dishes, In my opinion, it reduces the need for additional sugar because it has almost like a dessert-like, luxurious floral quality to it. So I throw it into my kids' pancakes, banana bread, muffins, and then I cut back on, you know, the processed refined sugars. Right. Um, And then number five would be a spice that I didn't grow up with, that would be the only spice I would add to the Indian spice box, which is sumac. Ooh. So it comes from the, yeah, it's, oh my gosh, I'm obsessed with it. I eat it straight out of the jar. It comes from the middle East. It grows on a bush. It's a vibrant kind of burgundy purple. And whenever you see that color in nature, you know, you're encountering these powerful antioxidants like anthocyanins. Um, it's, the best way to think about sumac is like lemon without the kind of liquid. And so it's like lemony, tangy, but it also has these fruity, almost wine-like notes. And I like to think of it as a finishing spice. So you can put it on every single salad you ever make going forward to add color, taste, more antioxidants. Um, I love putting it on my hummus or baba ganoush, Mm -hmm. you know, on flatbread. I mean, it's an integral spite in the za'atar blend, which is prominent in the Middle East. So those would be my five kind of starter spices for a global home cook.
0: This feels like a really good place for us to end our time together. If I offer up the phrase to catalyze healing, what comes up for you?
3: Get reconnected with nature and each other. I -hmm. think we're, you know, I'm reminded of like the redwood trees and their lateral roots and how they are, Mm -hmm. they're so interconnected. And whether we realize it or not, you know, Energetically, we're like Einstein, that like it's vibration, it's quantum physics, we're interconnected anyway. And I think we've kind of like put ourselves into these isolated boxes and like we're stressed out and we're like on social media. I mean, that's all, that's me. I'm not passing judgment on anyone else. Mm-hmm. But I think like reconnecting with each other in a deep way, not just on our devices and with nature, putting our feet on the ground you know, finding solace and strength and groundedness by sitting in nature, taking a walk in nature. I feel like it's like we have to go back to these practices that are really who we are, and we've kind of lost sight of them. Mm -hmm. And I really do feel like they will be more powerful than we realize.
0: Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, Please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.